Hi, and welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast from the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture. I'm Dr. Brady Brewer, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics. And joining me today is Dr. Jim Minter, uh, who's a professor and the director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture in the Department of Agricultural Economics. On today's episode, we're going to focus on the latest release of the USDA farm income forecast. Before we get into this latest release, I do want to just remind everyone uh, that Dr. Todd Keithy, in a previous episode of the AgCast, uh, broke down what the USDA farm income forecast is and, and kind of the mechanics uh, related to this forecast. Um, so if you are not familiar with it, you may want to go back and listen to that episode. A link will be in the description uh, for you to click on to take you to that episode. Um, so as I said, today we're going to focus on the December release, which is the third release of the farm income forecast. So a quick refresher, uh, there, the, the USDA does four forecasts for the farm income in any given year. There will be one more forecast in February of 2021 before they actually release 2020's numbers um, all the way almost a year from now in August of 2021. But with more data that we uh, that they get, every forecast uh, they release becomes a little bit more accurate and also a little bit more closer to what we would expect those final numbers to be next August. Uh, so starting out, Jim, uh, let, let's start with net farm income. So net farm income right now is forecasted to be uh, right at $119.6 billion. Uh, to put this in perspective, net farm income uh, from this in 2019 was $83.6 billion, which is a 43% uh, increase in net farm income uh, from 2020 relative to 2019. Yeah, Brady, you know, I like to look at it uh, in inflation-adjusted terms so that we can kind of compare farm income in 2020 to some prior years, particularly going back a ways. And when you look at it that way, that $120 billion for 2020, um, you know, there's only a couple of years when farm income has been higher than that. It was higher than that, I think, in, uh, what, 2011 and again in 2013, and pretty close to that level back in 2004. Uh, but you know, that's the third, third highest net farm income in inflation-adjusted terms we've seen in the history of the series. So turned out to be a pretty good year for agriculture. Um, and as you and I were talking previously, um, before the broadcast started, you know, uh, that's not what we thought was going to happen necessarily back in March, April, May, right? There was um, quite a bit of a change there. And of course, a big chunk of that was coming out of the government pay uh, program payments uh, sector. Yeah. Uh, so as I just said, they, they release a, a forecast in August and then one here in, in December. And they definitely revised the forecast upward, given the stronger commodity prices we've seen here at the end of 2022 to get to the numbers we are at today. That they, they didn't start this high. And you know, you mentioned the the government payments. Probably a lot of people didn't have that in their budgets at the beginning of the year. Uh, so thinking about the net farm income, that is a substantial portion of it. So they have federal government payments uh, to farmers at 46 and a half billion dollars for 2020. In 2019, this was 22.4 billion dollars, uh, which is a hundred and seven. 0.1% increase in government payments uh, to farmers uh, from 2019 to 2020. So that's really helping uh, th that gross farm income number 
uh, increase for 2020. Uh, but one thing you know, I do want to point out though is that uh, you and I were also discussing. Well, you know, can we expect this into 2021? You know, even if we adjust it down, say 30 billion, farm income would still have been uh, would still have increased from 2019. Uh, to this year, even without that increase in in government payments. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, as you look at it, I mean, I think forecasting for 2021 is pretty tough at this point. There's a lot of wild cards involved there. But thinking about it, you'd have to expect the government program uh, payments to fall drastically in 2021 compared to 2020. And if you think about them falling back maybe in the ballpark of what they were, say, for example, from about 2012 to 2018, that would put those government payments in a kind of in a range of about 12 to maybe $14 billion. Um, so, you know, that $30 billion, uh, it could be a little more than that, actually, in terms of the decline. But it, as you think about it, um, you know, that puts us back in that 85 to maybe $90 billion net farm income range, uh, which, as you point out, is is equal to or a little bit higher than it was um, in, in 2019. So, you know, I think um, as people think about you know, making plans for 2021, as you think about the lenders evaluating loan portfolios, et cetera, you know, going back to the beginning of this year, we didn't forecast government program payments anywhere close to this level. Um, so I don't think we were expecting it when we went through the process last year. And I think it's unreasonable to think that we're going to see anything like that in, in 2021. The wild card continues to be what takes place on, on the crop and livestock income sector, right? Yeah, so if you look at uh, cash receipts went down about 1%. So they went from about $369 billion to $366 billion from 2019 to, to 2020. So that uh, small decline in, in what we saw from the cash receipts that the carry out on, on the crops. Yeah, well, of course, the reason they went down was the animal side. It was the animal sector that got hit. Um, the estimate for 2019 on, on animals and animal products was 176 uh, billion. And in 2020, I think they dropped it about 10 billion to 166. The crop estimate was actually up from 194 in 2019 to uh, 200 in, in 2020. <clears throat> so it did capture at least a portion of this rise in commodity prices we've seen since August. And of course, um, you know, speaking of forecast, uh, going back to August, you know, when the August crop report came out, uh, I don't think anybody was forecasting the rally that we've seen in commodity prices here this fall. So it just points out how difficult it is to forecast uh, prices and income uh, in the ag sector with inelastic supply and inelastic demand. So always a challenge. Yeah. And, you know, something to bring up here is the trade issue with these cash receipts. Uh, we've seen a lot of movement on the trade side, especially with China. Uh you know, with their continued evolution of their hog industry becoming more industrial, I think you you said it best that they're going to need more corn and soybeans to feed those hogs, and that that's kind of a, a question mark, right? That and that could actually be a bright spot in terms of is there opportunity there to drive demand uh, and keep the prices elevated where they are today uh, if they continue to rebuild those hog inventories. Yeah, I mean, the good news is we're seeing a dramatic increase in exports to China. Um, and if you look at the rise in exports for both corn and soybeans this uh, this fall into the 2020 marketing year, which started September 1, 
almost all of the increase, not quite, but a, a three-fourths or more of the increase in exports has been the one country, namely China. And that's being driven primarily by their desire to um, increase meat supplies, particularly pork in China. Um, China, of course, is the world's largest pork producer and world's largest uh, pork consumer. And their, their hog industry is so large, it's, it's kind of hard to get a grip around it. Uh, you know, you think about the magnitude of the numbers. I think at one point, if you go back to like 2018, I think China's hog slaughter was in the ballpark of about 700 million head. And that, it takes a while to absorb that number, right? Because if you think about the U.S., our hog industry has been increasing in size. But um, in 2020, we're going to slaughter, uh, I think, around 130 or 131 million head. So you just think about the magnitude of the Chinese hog sector. If you look at the USDA numbers uh, in terms of forecasting what might happen in China in 2021, USDA is forecasting an increase in hog slaughter in China of about 50 million head. Just think about that number, 50 million head increase in hog slaughter in China. And as you pointed out, you know, part of what's going on is they're not just trying to rebuild their existing hog industry. They're trying to commercialize it and move away from the backyard production model and move to a more of a, a commercial scale model. And in some respects, a commercial scale model that exceeds the commercial scale that we're looking at uh, in the U.S. in terms of the size and the magnitude of some of these hog enterprises that they're putting up. So, you know, there's a lot of risk there if they're successful. It, it does suggest very strong demand in China for corn and soybeans and soybean meal. Um, as some people in the U.S. hog industry have pointed out, the model they're pursuing is also somewhat risky from an animal health standpoint. So if they have another outbreak um, that sweeps through some of these huge uh, hog facilities, um, they could have another problem as well. So it's, it's not without risk, but it does, if, if they're successful, it bodes well for uh, exports of corn, soybeans, and soybean meal from the U.S., and then also from South America, which, I, you know, they're going to continue to get a lot of uh, soybeans and soybean meal, and to some extent, corn from South America as well. Yeah, and it's definitely something, when you think about a forecast, uh, that is also risky from a U.S. perspective, because we don't know if this demand is going to materialize. So if you think, so thinking about uh, what these cash receipts are going to do uh, into 2021, uh, there's there's only a couple people in China that know what's going to happen to, to the demand there, right? Uh, this, this isn't something that we can get a, a good pulse on uh, to know how this will play out. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a policy decision in Beijing. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. But the, I, I guess the good news for American producers is to think about the standpoint from, the, from China's standpoint they want to keep their consumers happy. And so one of the challenges they have to do is, is a, provide an opportunity for uh, their population to improve their diet. And around the world, improving your diet means consuming more animal protein. And so um, I, I'm reasonably confident they're going to continue to pursue that path. Um, but it, it, it does create some challenges in terms of trying to figure out what the quantities might be. And so, you know, as you look around the industry, there are some forecasts out there that are expecting a very, very strong exports and further tightening of supplies. And, you know, if you look at where we're at with respect to especially soybean supplies, USDA's November uh, 
World Ag Supply Demand Estimates suggested our carryover from the 2020 crop going into 2021 would only be about 4% of total usage. And I think their carryover estimate in terms of bushels was 190 million bushels. There's not a lot of wiggle room in that kind of a carryover. So, you know, if you see continued very strong export demand, um, it suggests some more positivity on the price side to ration existing supplies. And then, of course, you've got the additional wild card of what's going to take place in South America this winter. Uh, we're going into the winter with concerns about dry weather um, in South America, but there's still a lot of time left for that to change and, and potentially see an improvement in crop production prospects there. So just a lot of uncertainty, but it, it certainly looks better now uh, than it did you know, at the start of the pandemic here back in uh, February and in March, right? Yeah, this uh, that 43% increase in net farm income is definitely a, a bright spot. Um, the other thing I want to mention, so we've been focusing on the revenue side and what's been going on there, but the other side is the expenses. Uh, and again, this was a bright spot for, for the income statement here in 2020. So the USDA, the latest numbers are released last week. Uh, cash expenses decreased uh, about 1.5%, and total farm expenses decreased about 1.5%. Uh, so actually it was... Uh, we saw it cheaper to put the crops in the ground here in 2020. Yeah, and you know, if you look at it, it's kind of impressive to look at the change that's taken place there. I think their estimate for cash expenses in 2020 is 313 billion. You go back to 2014, um, for example, they were at 339 billion. So you've seen a significant change in production expenses um, over the last five or six years. And I thought, Going back to that 2014, 2015 timeframe, you know, there was a lot of debate as to whether or not we could respond to lower price levels for ag commodities by pushing down expenses. And a lot of people argued that that wouldn't happen. But in fact, if you look at the data, it does suggest that the industry was able to adjust by pushing down cost of production in response to lower commodity prices. Yeah, and then I think uh, this probably comes from several sources. It, uh, we have kind of seen a leveling off of the production expenses uh, in terms of a linear trend upward. So some of it is different production practices, right? Farmers switching to no-till, decreasing input, certain input usage. But some of it has been a softening of prices uh, on the input side. Yeah, it's, it's a combination of factors. I mean, I think it's, it's a tribute to the industry that we're able to respond um, you know, this is a, this is one of the hallmarks of a market-based economy, right? People look at their total uh, enterprise and look for ways to improve and economize, and they identify a multitude of ways to do that. And in the aggregate, you wind up seeing a, a response. And it's not it's not a single factor that did that. It's not a single decision anywhere. It's people across the industry looking at ways and identifying ways to do things better and more effectively and more efficiently. And, and some of it, as you pointed out, is, is just reductions in, in prices and maybe a tightening of margins, but it's more than that, right? It's improving technology and doing things better. So moving on. So that was the income statement, thinking about the net farm income and, and the revenue and the expenses. Uh, but they also release a balance sheet forecast uh, so what we saw on that from last week's release was that farm assets in aggregate 
uh, went up about one and a half percent from 2019 to 2020, uh, from about three and three quarter, um, about three trillion to 3.1 trillion. Uh, the, the, the individual things I want to call out that were driving this is we saw an increase in machinery and motor vehicles inventory. So actually, uh, the balance sheet for farms went up, uh, machinery and motor vehicle inventory went up about 3%. Uh, but we also saw crops stored um, or on farm go down about 2.1%. And I think that's thinking back to the demand uh, numbers and, and some of the, the stocks to use ratio. Uh, that's an indication of, of that as well. We have less grain being stored on farm right now on the farm balance sheet. Uh, and then the, the really big mover here that's driving that one and a half percent increase in farm assets, uh, we saw a 24.5% increase in financial assets. So USDA does not break down cash and other like marketable securities and, and stuff like that that you typically see in like a current asset section. They, they put it into um, financial assets. Uh, but this would probably lend that there's an increase of working capital out there, uh, other financial assets that a farmers can utilize to invest, uh, make investments in the farm. Saw a 24% increase from 2019 to 2020. So that's definitely a, a bright spot on the balance sheet as well. Um, looking at the debt, so debt, so assets, uh, we have, you know, balance sheet is made up of assets, liabilities, and equity. Uh, so on the right-hand side of the accounting identity, uh, debt went up about 4%. So it went from about $418 billion uh, to $435 billion from 2019 to 2020. And this caused equity to increase as well. So farmers have more equity, about 1.1% uh, higher uh, here in 2020 than in the levels that we saw in 2019. The debt numbers, uh, probably not all that surprising, Jim. Uh, Interest rates at all-time lows. Uh, it's not surprising that farmers increased uh, the amount of debt that they're holding. Yeah, I, I think some people look at the the raw debt numbers, and you'll you'll see some concerns expressed about that. But when I look at the values and think about uh, what's taking place with respect to interest charges, um, you know, why wouldn't you, right? Why wouldn't you borrow? Um, so I, I, I don't think that's a near as big a concern as it would have been. Um, well, truthfully, if you saw that kind of increase a year ago, I probably would have been a little more worried about it. Let's put it that way. Um, but in the, in the current environment, uh, I don't think it's really going to be all that troubling. Yeah. And to put it in perspective, uh, that, that 4% in total debt, uh, so real estate debt made up 6 point, well, real estate debt increased by 6.1%. Non-real estate debt essentially remains steady. Um, it's on increase of 0.2%. So most of that increase in total debt is being driven by debt that's tied to farmland. Uh, and we know that farmland is a pretty safe uh, asset. Uh, you know, outside of the 1980s, it's it's pretty much been on a steady climb upward. You know, one of the safest investments that uh, there is. That's why the cap rate is is close to the U.S. Treasury bill, um, the 10-year uh, T bill. You know that that's a pretty safe investment there. Yeah, which is approaching zero. So that, this is one of the, one of the things that's really interesting about farmland values, right? As that cap rate keeps going down, and by cap rate we're using the shorthand there, right? The capitalization rate uh, that people are looking at uh, when they make investments, um, 
you know, it, it really does drive to some extent what's taking place in farmland values and the, and the lack of competitive investments that are relatively low risk um, is pushing investors towards farmland. And, and I'm using investors in a very broad sense, right? I mean, in the sense, a lot of those folks are people that are engaged in some level in agriculture, um, and they're, but they have excess cash and they're choosing to invest it in farmland. Um, and we're seeing that with respect to prices. I guess it's gonna be interesting when we see some of the survey data come out. I haven't seen it yet. Um, Iowa State is usually the first one to release their fall estimates and I don't think those are out yet. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see, I think, from what we're picking up from all the auctions and uh, discussing this with people in the real estate industry, you know, we're, we're seeing some strength in farmland values. And it's at least partly a reflection, not only of the strength in commodity prices, but also what's going on with these interest rates. Yeah. And, and just to clarify for those listening, so the capitalization rate, typically the most common cap rate you would see for farmland is you would take the, the income potential, which we would assume would be cash rent prices for an acre of land divided by uh, the price per acre of that particular farmland. So as it goes lower, it indicates that the rent that you can get relative to the price you pay for it is widening. Uh, and it would mean, typically means a, a weaker investment, but uh, we've seen the, the cap rate continue to go down, but people are continuing to still buy it, which would indicate that people really see it as a very sound, uh, less risky investment. And I, I really think that point that you made, Jim, about lack of alternative investments. Um, yes, the stock market has gone up, but there's some risk there. So if you're looking for an asset that provides a little bit less risk in, in whatever portfolio you have. And I'm, and I'm not really talking Wall Street here. I am thinking about someone who's owning durable assets. Uh, farmland's uh, pretty attractive. And especially with uh, these historically low interest rates, other farmers, uh, if they're looking to expand it, it's a pretty good time to do that. Yeah, Brady, you know, the other way to look at the cap rate, of course, is just take that cash rental rate. And we're seeing some evidence that cash rental rates have, are experiencing some upward pressure. So take the cash rental rate and divide it by uh, what that cap rate, that that interest rate, uh, whatever you might receive on alternative investments. And as that goes down, that effectively pushes up the value that you're willing to pay to acquire that, that farmland. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing people looking at uh, these cash rental rates and saying, okay, that looks pretty good. And if I divide that by the rate that I could earn on some alternative investment like a CD, which is approaching zero, um, all of a sudden, I'm willing to pay some pretty high prices for farmland. And I think that's what we're seeing in some cases at some of these auctions and uh, around the Midwest and elsewhere. Yep. Uh, so this leads me, so one of the key numbers I look at, if you put everything together on the balance sheet side, is I, I like to look at ratios. Uh, so if you look at the debt to asset ratio, it did increase from 2019 to 2020. So the debt to asset ratio is just the ratio of, of the farm debt relative to the market value of the farm assets. In 2019, uh, it was 13.61 or 13.6%. Uh, and this increased uh, 0.3 percentage points to 13.95. So almost uh, to 14, which is the highest it's been in, in a little over 10 years. Uh, to, uh, so that, that does cause some concern. And, and Jim, I do agree with you when you say that increase, that 4% increase in total debt on the balance sheet side, you know, I'm like you, I'm not concerned about it. Uh, it is interesting to see that the debt to asset uh, increase a little bit more. That would mean that the farmers have a little bit less cushion. 
still not to levels that I'm, you know, keeping me up at night per se. Uh, you know, farmers have understandably leveraged up with the low interest rates. This is the the consequences of that is we're seeing a little bit higher debt to asset ratio. Yeah, if you look, uh, and I don't have this data in front of me, I'm hoping you do, but um, if you go back and look at the debt to asset ratio uh, in times when agriculture was really under stress, for example, the 1980s, that debt to asset ratio was much, much higher than it is today. So it does look like uh, the debt to asset ratio back in the 1980s uh, was a lot higher than it was we currently see at the three point. Uh, 9.5% uh, today here forecasted for 2020. In 1984, um, in 1985, it was about 22% um, and 20, a little over 22% in 1985. So not quite double where we see the debt to asset ratio today, but still a long ways to go before we get to the levels we saw in the 1980s. Um, and this is a, a good time to, to just remind the listeners. So this USDA balance sheet that's, that is with the farm income forecast, this is an aggregate of the U.S. Uh, farm balance sheet. So one common misinterpretation, and I will be completely uh, transparent here and say, I, I have been guilty of making this interpretation of saying, oh, this is for an average farm. No, this is the aggregate balance sheet for U.S. agriculture. So this is why this balance, uh, this these debt to asset ratios may seem a little low, because uh, it's representing it, it's really a horizontal summation of all the farms in the U.S. Uh, on average, what we see if you look at some of the state data sets, debt to asset ratios like the Kansas or the Illinois um, or the Kentucky or the North Dakota data sets, uh, most of the time their average debt to asset ratios are up in the high 20s or or low 30s. Uh, but with that said, we can still look at the debt-to-asset ratio of, of this farm income forecast that the USDA releases and look at the trends, and it is going up. Um, but yes, back in the 80s, it, it was significantly higher than what it is today. So with that, you know, if I'm a lender, um, you know, I, I think that there's some question marks on the revenue side. The balance sheet has remained strong for U.S. farms. Uh, you know, but the revenue side is is something I'm probably taking a look at. But with that said, even if you take away those government payments, cash flows were still, uh, or net farm income would still have increased from 2019 to 2020. So probably not all that much of a concern. Um, but given the historically low interest rates, you know, still still want to put caution on there that just because land values are going up, asset values are going up, you know, you still want to do your due diligence, but but things still look pretty rosy heading into 2021. Yeah, I think the prospects for uh, 2021 look pretty good. You know, coming into 2020, before the pandemic unfolded, we were expecting 2020 to be an improving year over 2019. And I think looking into 2021, um, it's a little bit different because of, of the uncertainty with respect to what's going to happen on the government payment side. Um, but clearly, we're not going to see that kind of government payment support. So we're probably going to see farm income come down. But I, I don't think that's the real story. I think the real story is where we are in that longer term trend. And, and you, you kind of need to view 2020 as an aberration. Um, and so when you look at it that way, when you think about 2021 relative to 2019, I think it's probably good prospects for an uh, 
continuation of that, um, that improving trend that we were seeing coming into 2020. And whether or not farm income winds up being, you know, in the high 80s, the low 90s, um, you know, that's a, that's a real open question at this point, depending on what happens with respect to especially the ag trade side, but to some extent, obviously, what, what weather conditions uh, take place, uh, what happens with respect to the opening of the, of the economy, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. Um, prospects there are looking better every day with, you know, the U.K. just this week starting to vaccinate people for COVID-19. Uh, looks like the U.S. might be vaccinating some folks by the end of the year. Um, you know, it's anybody's guess at this point as to how rapidly we get enough people vaccinated to really kind of reopen the economy. But certainly when you get past the, the first half of 2021, you have to think things are going to look better than they do today. So uh, a lot of bright spots out there, really. The only negative is saying we're going to pull down that uh, government payment sector. But I think uh, looking for those other sectors, uh, the commercial side, to kind of pick up the slack is, is going to be a positive. But um, it, it does kind of bring up an issue, though, Brady, and that is, you know, what's taking place here in the fourth quarter? Because farmers are looking at a situation where income is unexpectedly high here at the end of 2020. Historically, you know, when you look at the farm machinery business, for example, uh, that's a time frame when people like to make capital investments. You know, there's a lot of seasonality with respect to, for example, high horsepower tractor sales, et cetera. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what the numbers show when this fourth quarter is over. But I think this is probably going to be a pretty good time to be in the farm machinery business, both from a, a dealership perspective and a manufacturer perspective. Yeah, with these uh, strong uh, net cash farm incomes, there's probably going to be some farmers looking to uh, increase some deductions on their uh, tax statements. Uh, and that typically comes from the machinery side of, of things. So, you know, it's, and the other thing I want to point out is these numbers are pretty good. Uh, the USDA releases these in December, but the data is really only midway through the fall. So some of this data was only really beginning to pick up this rally. So when they release some the, the next round of this forecast in February, uh, these numbers could be adjusted upward again, which would paint an even better picture of what happened here in 2020. So I, to your point, yes, I, I think it is going to be a really good time to be in the machinery business uh, here at the end of 2020 and beginning of 2021. Yeah, and you compound that with the fact that in response to tighter margins for several years, what a lot of people probably did was, and, and the evidence would suggest they pulled back on their capital investments. And so now when we have a good year, uh, that's a time when you, you know, try and re replenish your capital stock. And so um, it'll be interesting to see what takes place there. But I expect to see a real tightening taking place. And I noticed here recently John Deere raised their forecast in anticipation of stronger sales. So... I think uh, we'll probably see that across the industry. Well, they already have a machinery predicted on the balance sheet, at least not on the income statement. So not these, uh, this isn't capital expenditures, but on the balance sheet, machinery inventory is already forecasted to increase uh, 3% from 2019 to 2020. My guess is in February, we see that number adjusted upward. So uh, just as a reminder, uh, this is the December uh, update to the USDA farm income forecast. There will be another update in February of 2021, and then the official numbers for the 2020 uh, year will be, won't be released until uh, next summer, August of 2021, uh, when they become official. So for more economic information, 
Uh, visit us at the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's website at purdue.edu slash commercial ag. On behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture and Dr. Jim Minter, I'm Brady Brewer, and we thank you for listening to this week's episode. 